You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, as Turkey causes trouble for Sweden's bid to join NATO, we ask what can its joint applicant and neighbour Finland do? Well, we have actually underlined to all our future NATO partners, including Hungary and, and, and Turkey, that uh, Finnish and Swedish security goes together. Also coming up, Azerbaijan asks the World Court to force Armenia to stop planting mines blocking its citizens. Armenia responds by asking Russia's President Putin for help. Plus, what can Italy do about its ageing population? We'll hear the latest urbanism news and we'll go through the papers too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in today's news. The United States is reportedly preparing more than $2 billion worth of military aid for Ukraine, expected to include longer-range rockets for the first time. Lebanon devalues its currency from today, marking a 90% devaluation from its current official rate that's remained unchanged for 25 years. And there are reports that Airbus and Qatar Airways are moving towards an agreement to settle a bitter dispute over grounded A350 aeroplanes. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, while Turkey finds as many reasons as it can to block Sweden's application to join NATO, Finland has been left stuck. Having wed itself to Sweden in terms of its bid, Finland's fate now seems to lie in the hand of Turkey's rather combustible leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Well, earlier at the Warsaw Security Forum in October, the foreign desk team here at Monocle 24 sat down with General Philip Breedlove, who formerly served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander at Europe from 2013 to 2016. Here's what he had to say about the prospect of Finland and Sweden joining the alliance. Finland and Sweden are extremely capable military nations. And they are very solid, extremely capable democracies that support the appropriate application of military power. These are the perfect additions to NATO. And beyond that, both Finland and Sweden have been exercising with us for years at a very high level. I don't say this in an ultra-critical way, so please take it appropriately. Finland and Sweden are more compatible with NATO than some of our NATO allies are compatible with NATO. And they will arrive and immediately make military contribution to our alliance. These are two incredible military forces and incredible democratic nations that we really want on our team. That was General Philip Breedlove there, and listening to that was Paul Rogers, an international security advisor at Open Democracy and a regular voice here on Monocle 24. Very good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Emma. So let's just set things out. How much trouble is Sweden's bid in at the moment to join NATO? And as a result, how much trouble is Finland's bid in? Well, it's been in trouble for quite a long while. I mean, the, the Turks basically object pretty strongly uh, to the way in which you have quite a large uh, Kurdish diaspora 
in Sweden, including many supporters of the PKK, the Kurdish Workers Party. And of course, that is anathema to somebody like Erdogan in, in Turkey. Uh, and that's at the root of it. And, and the basically, Turkey presented Sweden recently with a list of 120 people that it wanted extraditing, returning, if you like, to Turkey. Um, and Sweden is not playing that game at present. So that that's, in a sense, at the root of it. And um, we've also, of course, got the Turkish elections. It's not quite clear whether they're scheduled for May or June, but they're in the near future. And obviously, Erdogan is very concerned about his position there. So you put that the two together. And in a sense, this is a fairly rare opportunity where Erdogan has some political clout, because, uh, as we know, in NATO, you have to have every member state, that's all 30 member states, willing to accept a new member. And currently, Hungary and Turkey do not, although Hungary basically is expected to uh, put that through its own parliamentary system in the next few weeks. So really, Turkey is a standoff here. And I think Erdogan feels he has this sort of card to play. Against that, of course, um, for different reasons, Finland and Sweden are now keen to join NATO, partly obviously because of the Russian involvement in Ukraine, but also because of fears about the um, the way in which Russia might use the long border with Finland in particular uh, to sort of make trouble, if you like, to put it very crudely. So you put that all together, and essentially Kurgan has this sort of power at present. I think myself, this is for what it's worth, that a lot of this is geared to the election, and he has to appear strong to the Turkish population. Um, and it's possible that this may be resolved after the election. But obviously, NATO wants it resolved a lot quicker than that. And the Americans are quietly putting a lot of pressure on Turkey over this. It's an interesting situation for Finland to find itself in, though, because this is all an argument between Turkey and Sweden. It is indeed. And the other complication, well, not a complication, the reality is that Finland and Sweden are basically of quite a lot of significance to NATO. NATO would like them to have to have them in because obviously the northern sort of its part of its common border with the areas of uh, Russian influence uh, it's Finland and sort of hundreds over a thousand kilometers of joint border uh, Finland and Sweden have worked together pretty closely on defense for many years and Finland you say is not directly involved in this so you know the Prime Minister Marin in a sense is in a rather difficult position uh, the Finns would like it resolved one of the issues is whether there's some way in which the Finns go it alone with Turkey. But that would be, I think, something they would not want to do unless they're actually pushed into it. But that is certainly a possibility. There's a couple of other complications. One is that in the United States, uh, quite an influential Democrat senator, uh, Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, is basically very opposed to what Turkey is doing and is now threatening to at least try and get the Senate to block the export of very modern version of the F-16 to um, Turkey. And of course, if that was to put pressure on Erdogan, that may change his mind somewhat. Uh, but overall, you, you have a problem and there's no easy answer. It's complicated at present also because there was the burning of a Koran in Sweden quite recently, which has caused a lot of anger in Turkey and indeed in other parts of the Muslim world, including demonstrations in Indonesia. Uh, so that has re really further soured relations between Sw Sweden and Turkey. But the Swedes as a whole would be quite strong in supporting their government in taking this kind of stand. So that's the sort of complication we have at the moment, and it's no easy way to resolve it. But one thing is that Erdogan, still trying to drive the agenda, has suggested that Finland can go in alone. What would be the, the consequences of that? 
Well, I mean, that, I think, puts pressure on Finland, and it also is a considerable annoyance to uh, to NATO. It's possible that some sort of compromise could work, be worked out, whether there's some sort of sequence to joining. But the bottom line is the, the Swedes are very reluctant. In fact, I, I think this is almost a sort of a, a red line for them. They're not prepared, as far as one can see, to actually um, essentially send people to Turkey on a, what they consider to be a human rights thing. And as I say, it's not a problem with Finland because I think there are very few um, Turks in the small diaspora in Finland that hold this sort of position. It is stronger in Sweden. In fact, it's probably true that the the Kurdish diaspora in Sweden is probably the most influential in Western Europe at the present time. Um, so it simply don't know. I, one suspects that this may be resolved slightly later, sometime in the summer after the elections. But the, the so things are so uncertain with the Ukraine war um, and the idea that uh, basically Russia is losing, I think there are problems with that. It's just not as simple. And I think what the NATO would like to have is Sweden and Finland firmly in NATO together and have a strengthened alliance. And they'd like to see that as a long term because the move in among, I think, American security specialists now is they expect the war to go on a long time in Ukraine, maybe for another year or two. Uh, and that is a change in mood, I think, fairly recently, with no real prospect of talks. Put this all together, and in fact, for this fairly rare occasion, um, Finland and Sweden, their membership in NATO is important, and Turkey is the country which can block that or at least slow it down. And you mentioned uh, the fact that Finland and Sweden are very, very um, joined in terms of their, their approach to joining NATO. This this in their view, is is something that has to be done as one. And uh, Finland's foreign minister has been asked, how long can Finland wait for this to be sorted out with Sweden? And replied, we have patience. Is this something that, that does the world still have the time to wait for this? Because all this is being precipitated by the fact that Finland has Russia on its doorstep. Yes, but I think the reality is that um, Finland and Sweden have a very close relationship with each other, but they also have a pretty close relationship with other NATO states. So to some extent, uh, this is sort of um, uh, sort of dotting the I's and crossing the T's for a situation which already exists. They're not integrated into NATO, but they are very close. So I don't think this is, this is the major problem. Um, another thing to add, I think, is that Finland has maintained pretty good to our tolerable relations with Russia and formerly the Soviet Union ever since the end of that winter war back at the end of the 1930s. Um, Sweden, I think, sees things slightly different because over recent years, there have clearly been rather embarrassing um, Russian sort of quasi-interventions or apparent interventions in Swedish territorial waters. And I think Sweden is unhappy at this and sees, perhaps rarely in its history with NATO, as a, a reason to sort of tip the balance. It's an extra factor behind Swedish thinking at present. Um, Sweden, of course, has long had a very strong independent defence policy, very much a defensive defences policy. And I think it is now changing that rather. And this is one of the other, I suppose, sad reflections of what's happening in the last year or so. Um, there's a hardening of the military outlook right across Western Europe, as you would expect. And that is reflected, I think, in the change in the Swedish mood, particularly among its armed forces in terms of membership of NATO. So what happens next? I mean, we have all 30 members of NATO must ratify 
both Sweden and Finland's application. Um, you meant to be mentioning it, Turkey and indeed Hungary are holding out. So what can other countries do behind the scenes? I think the only... Well, I mean, a number of NATO countries can put informal pressure on Turkey. But Erdogan is, is basically very well known for being absolutely resolute when he's sort of made up his mind. The United States could put more direct pressure on Turkey, is rather reluctant to do so uh, for sort of causing a big breach. Because, of course, all along you have Putin and Russia absolutely liking this, if not loving it, uh, and very keen to see an improvement in their relations with Turkey. And Turkey itself, under Erdogan, has been playing this sort of middle role, mainly because of its geostrategic position in the war in Ukraine. And as a result, it certainly increased its influence a lot as far as Russia is concerned. Put that in the context of what is happening in Syria and Iraq and the threatened NATO, uh, sorry, uh, um, Turkish involvements there, maybe more military involvement, and you have yet one more complication. Uh, The answer to your question, I don't think anybody knows what is going to happen here. Somehow it will be sorted out, but one feels that what you said about the Finnish foreign minister is correct. The Finns have patience, because the reality is there is this very close relationship with NATO, even at the present time, involving both Sweden and Finland, and very much jointly as well. Paul Rogers, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. It's uh, 11.13 in Yerevan, 7.13 here at Midori House in London. And there has been a fresh flare-up of tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan in recent weeks. Armenia has accused Azerbaijan of laying siege to more than 100,000 of its citizens. In response, Azerbaijan has called on the International Court of Justice to order Armenia to stop planting explosive devices and to reveal the location of mines which it says are stopping Azerian nationals from going to back to their former homes. Well, to bring us the latest... I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Joshua Kuchera, who's a senior correspondent at Eurasianet, covering the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Good morning, Joshua. Good morning. So just just bring us an outline, outline what is happening, if you would, please. Well, so the, the latest round of tension began on December 12th, when a group of um, uh, Azerbaijani uh People presenting themselves as uh, environmental protesters set up camp on the road uh, called the Lachin Corridor, which is the only road connecting uh, this territory of Nagorno-Karabakh and its tens of thousands of uh, Armenian residents with the the entire rest of the outside world. Uh, Since then, uh, commerce between between, uh, Karabakh and the rest of the world has almost completely been uh, suspended. Uh, It's uh, effectively a blockade. Um, people in their uh, report, uh, grocery stores reporting food shortages and so on. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the state of play right now. And that continues to go on a, a month and a half after it began. Uh, nobody has been able to stop it. Uh, the Russian peacekeepers, which are supposed to be maintaining security on the road, have been unable to do anything about it. Uh, There have been calls from the international community, uh, the U.S., the EU, all sorts of places uh, calling on Azerbaijan to lift the blockade. Uh, It hasn't happened yet. 
so there's uh, really no uh, end in sight, I would say, for this blockade. And the effect uh, on the effect on the on these people is is significant, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned this is the Lachin Corridor, which yes. let's try and sort of explain a little bit about what what this is, and and it, this is arguably the only way that Armenia can get food and fuel and supplies to Nagorno-Karabakh, which is recognised as a part of Azerbaijan, but is home to this hundred thousand plus group of Armenians. Exactly. And so uh, after the war in 2020, if we recall, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a war in 2020. In that war, uh, Azerbaijan regained almost you know, about th- three quarters of the territory that it had lost in the previous war between the two sides in the 1990s. And that includes all of the territory surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh. So that made Karabakh into, into a sort of island uh, in the middle of, of the rest of Azerbaijan. Um, that meant this this road, this Lachin corridor, is the only way in and out uh, to for, for the population of of Nagorno Karabakh. It's supposed to be protected according to the ceasefire agreement that ended that 2020 war. It's supposed to be protected uh, by the the Russian peacekeeping force, uh, but they have been they have been proven kind of unable to uh, secure transit uh, on this road. So that's, yeah, that's the current situation. Now, one thing that seems to be different this time around, because these are obviously tensions that date back many, many years, but both parties have decided to go to the International Court of Justice to try to resolve this. I mean, there's, without having to go into the legal detail, why is that decision being made and, and, you know, how useful is it? Uh, well, I think I'll start with the second. I don't think it's going to be incredibly useful. I think that there's been a number of, of, of cases in international courts from both sides. Uh, the ICJ also um, issued a ruling in, uh, I believe it was December 2021, uh, kind of calling on both sides to uh, decrease, um, if I'm remembering the, um, the, the terminology correctly, prevent the incitement and promotion of racial, racial hatred on both sides. Uh, it didn't really do anything on the ground. I think that uh, it's whatever the court rules uh, in this case, it's not likely to have any uh, impact on the ground. I think this is more probably better seen as a both sides are trying to make their case uh, in the court of public opinion, world public opinion as well. Uh, Armenia trying to get attention to the fact that um, that Azerbaijan is blockading it and trying to get greater international pressure uh, on Baku to stop the blockade. Uh, Azerbaijan is trying to both uh, deny that it is a blockade uh, and secondly, to call attention to what it says is Armenia's own misdoings in this region, which include, uh, they say, uh, continuing to plant landmines uh, on the territory uh, and so on. Um, You mentioned the six-week war that took place in 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. More than 7,000 troops were killed in in that time. At that mm-hmm. time, Russia was brought in to try to broker a peace deal, to try to sort things out. Uh, the fact remains now is that Vladimir Putin has a, an invasion of Ukraine on its on his hands. Um, what is Russia now? What's Russia's part now? Well, that's the big question. Uh, as I said, they're the ones who, according to the ceasefire agreement, have been charged with uh, providing security on the road, and they're not really doing it. Um, I think... There's a lot of uh, people in Armenia who think that uh, Moscow is perhaps acting in cahoots with Azerbaijan, that they are uh, kind of tacitly letting this blockade, uh, tacitly allowing this blockade to happen uh, for their own interest, possibly to 
uh, punish Armenia for its own kind of tentative moves toward the West, possibly because um, there's another provision in that 2020 agreement to open uh, a land uh, route connecting the two parts of Azerbaijan uh, via Armenian territory. Uh, that is in Russia's interest. Uh, Azerbaijan accuses of Armenia of dragging its feet on that. And so there's a there's a school of thought that uh, Russia is allowing Azerbaijan to do this um, in order to punish Armenia. Uh, the other, on the other hand, uh, you see that um, Russia's been made to look really impotent in this case. Uh, and you see the Azerbaijani media kind of crowing over the fact that they've been able to do this in the face of the Russians. The Azerbaijani media is quite anti-Russian now. And so it's also hard to believe that um, that the Russia would be allowing itself to be humiliated like this. Um, I think that more likely what, what's happening is that Russia, as you said, obviously has its hands full in Ukraine, um, and it really needs Azerbaijan in this time. For one, uh, Azerbaijan's main ally is Turkey. Uh, Turkey uh, has become, has positioned itself as kind of a key pivot uh, in this Russia-Ukraine war, uh, and it's really given um, Russia a big incentive to try to uh, maximize its good relations with with Turkey. And so Russia really is trying to uh, not do anything that would would make uh, Turkey angry. And that would include uh, acting against Azerbaijan uh, in, 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 in this conflict. So I think that's Russia is really in a in a difficult situation, um, of course, of its own making. And uh, the uh, the result in the Caucasus is that they're just kind of dropping out. Joshua Kuchera, thank you so much for that. Still to come on today's programme, we'll hear why Thailand is vying to become the next aviation hub in Asia. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. in Rome, 7.22 here in London. Now, following the news that China's population is in decline, Italy has now announced that its citizens are ageing and shrinking in number at the fastest rate in the West. Well, to tell us what's happening and what can be done about it, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Leila Simona Talani, who's Professor of International Political Economy and Director of the Centre for Italian Politics at King's College London. Good morning to you, Leila. Good morning. Now, all this has a name, doesn't it? It's called a silver tsunami. Yeah, it is in a way. Italy is um, the country in Europe with the highest number of over 65. It's something like one fourth of the population, which is now over 65. 
So it's becoming a serious problem. It must be said, however, that this is a problem which is shared with the rest of Europe because many other countries have similar percentages, around 22%, 21% of Finland, Greece, Portugal. So there is a number of countries are in a similar situation. And it's not by any means a problem only for Italy. So if one in four people in, well, if, if we focus for the moment on Italy, because we have uh, Giorgio Maloney talking about the, the, yeah. the situation there. If we look at what what having a quarter of your population over 65 looks like. I mean, what effect does that have on Italy? Well, the problem is that obviously there are many less people who are uh, um, employable or employed and there are many more people who are in retirement. So they need to be maintained uh, in, uh, in the later age and then you need people to sustain them. So basically uh, there is a problem of uh, um, welfare state, which is very important and also a fiscal problem to a very large extent because all of these impinges on, on, the, on the budget. So there is a serious problem. In fact, it's got so serious that uh, Giorgio Maloney has um, come across and said, you know, this is a prime minister saying that Italy is destined to disappear unless things change. And she talks of a demographic time bomb. I mean, what are the negative effects, are the negative effects that could happen to Italy um, if things aren't, if things don't change? Well, obviously, if things don't change, uh, this is an aging population and uh, the population will sooner or later disappear. But that's a little bit too catastrophic because there is a solution to aging problems. I even have a PhD student working on this on the case of China. And the solution is migration. <laughs> you just need to import younger people. Unfortunately, Meloni is not the kind of person who is very prone to taking such a solution, but the solution exists. Well, this, this is a problem, isn't it? Because we yeah. now have a right-wing populist prime minister in charge, yeah. Uh, yeah. voted in on an anti-immigration ticket, <laughs> uh, Eurosceptic, um, but... You know, faced with a problem that demands her to go back on all the principles that she was elected on. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, as you said, she's a right-wing populist and she's anti-migrants. It must be said that in Italy, anti-migration positions are common, not only, unfortunately, it's not only something of the, the, the right-wing populist parties, but still migrants come. So it's the, we have a popul- actually Italy is, a, is a, a population of emigration at the moment. It's a country of emigration. Since 2016, officially the number of people who go out are more than the, the people who come in. That should say something about it. Obviously, majority are not regular, so there are there is a lot of irregular migration. Then, uh, in a way, keep the numbers uh, be better than they would be if we didn't have migration. Uh, the solution that she found is to increase nasality policies, which is a typical right-wing solution to the question of uh, demographic uh, aging. Um, also there, however, the, the possibility that this will uh, be effective is very low, not because these pop- policies don't work. I mean, France is one of the countries where they have been working. In France, I think it's only one fifth of the population now, which is over 65. But we don't have the money to afford it. It's a serious policy. It needs, needs a lot of money. You need to have tax uh, reliefs for, for people to have children. Women should be... Uh, given the possibility of uh, uh, staying at home and being paid um, or having you know, affordable childcare, which is not the case. So it's also a very costly policy. And culturally, I mean, we've, we've seen this in China, the fact that uh, there's been a, a sort of a cultural shift by young people that they don't want to have children. Uh, I mean, they've obviously grown up in cultures where, in, you know, in a, in a country where 
they've been limited to in, in the number of children that they've been allowed to have up until now. But in Italy, yeah. do culture, culture, do young people adhere still to the idea of having a big family? Well, no, the problem in Italy is actually an economic one. It's nothing to do with culture. I mean, women, I think, I mean, women, women have very, a very limited number of children. I think it's just over one because of the inflow of uh, migrants. But the problem is economic. Women don't find the job. In Italy, if you are pregnant, they, they, they suck you. So you lose your job. There is even the practice of making women uh, sign letters that when they get pregnant, they will uh, leave the job. Uh, so it's, it's a serious problem. There is no affordable uh, child care. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not culture, it's economic. So women just uh, wait as long as possible to have children. And obviously in later age, it's more difficult to have more children to find uh, you know, a suitable position in society. And so, in the economy. Yeah. So this is actually this is this is, an, this is a much bigger issue that we're now looking at, which is not just the cultural but the socio-economic no. um, situation. When you have a prime minister like Giorgio Meloni, who is not necessarily anti-EU but is incredibly Eurosceptic, and when you talk to about talk to me about the fact that you know women who get pregnant then get fired, um, surely there is EU law that could stop that from happening. Exactly. In fact, it's not completely done in in, uh, in the open air. It's simply done, you know, like hiddenly. And, and considered in Italy, there is a huge informal sector. So many women are sucked, but they never had the contract in the first place. So it's it's, it's much more complicated than this. It, it, it's it, I wouldn't say it's easy to solve. And uh, I am I'm absolutely sure that Mrs. Meloni would not be able to do it. Um, <laughs> let's also talk about the, the, the care of older people. Um, the, there is a general acknowledgement here that long-term care for the elderly is, is, is a welfare policy insofar as Italy is still a country which is prepared to look after its old. Is that still the case? No, it isn't. Uh, in Italy, there is a very, very widespread um, uh, practice, which is to hire migrant women to take care of the elderly. And this is uh, really, really very widespread. Unfortunately, this is completely, almost completely 80 percent. I just gave a lecture yesterday about this. 80 percent is informal. So it's not is uh, underground. It, although they are not necessarily uh, irregular migrants, uh, many of them are Moroccans who have already acquired Italian citizenship or they come from countries and been in Italy for a long time, but still it's done informally. So it's now the most, uh, also because of the aging uh, problem, uh, there are not enough people, enough women or enough uh, family that can take care of the elderly. There are so many and there is so, so little family that they, they need um, some help from uh, outside. Finally, Leila, you've obviously laid out a, a rather large shopping list in terms of how to fix the socioeconomic growth, socioeconomic growth of Italy. But in about 10 seconds, can you tell us very simply what could be done to, to address this? I have more migrants. Thank you for that. Leila Simona Tellani, you're listening to Monocle 24. The time is 7.30 here in London. A quick look at the latest news headlines. The United States is reportedly preparing more than $2 billion worth of military aid for Ukraine. It's expected to include longer-range rockets for the first time, plus support equipment for Patriot air defence systems. There are reports that Airbus and Qatar Airways are moving towards an agreement to settle a bitter dispute over grounded A350 aeroplanes. Previous attempts to avoid a high-profile trial in London have been abandoned, but the two companies have been fighting in a UK court over the safety impact of flaky 
leaking paint that exposed corrosion and gaps in the aircraft's lightning protection. And Lebanon is to devalue its currency from today. The country will adopt a new official exchange rate of £15,000 per US dollar, marking a 90% devaluation from its current official rate that's remained unchanged for 25 years. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. We'll be having a look at today's newspapers in just a moment. But first, the Transparency International Index has been released. It's the annual list of countries ranked by how corrupt they are perceived to be. This year's winner, seen as the least corrupt or susceptible to corruption, is Denmark. And not for the first time. But how has everybody else done? Well, Daniel Eriksson is the CEO of Transparency International. I'm delighted to say Daniel joins me on the line now. A very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Emma. So how is the list shaping up this year? So the, the overall is that the world is at the same level of corruption, but we also see worrying trends where developed countries in the global north are facing drops. And, and uh, most notable among them is the UK, who has dropped seven points to its lowest ranking ever. Uh, we also see a strong linkage between corruption, peace and security across the world. Right. So let's sort of d- delve in a little bit deeper into that one. Um, let's begin with the United Kingdom. What's caused the drop? Well, um, there's been, as I, I probably don't need to go into details, on a number of uh, political uh, disasters over the last year that probably have influenced the view on how well the, the government is trusted by, by uh, its citizens. And um, that will inevitably have an impact that uh, is being shown now in the score. Um- how much does you know if you if you are sort of operating in the United for, let's say in the United Kingdom and you suddenly get this this drop, how what effect does that have on your on the way that the world views you? Uh, in the United Kingdom, it will have effect uh, because these scores are essentially used by investors and other entities to to rank countries in the level of trust that they have in the institutions and in general business to business relationships as a proxy indicator. Uh, so it, it will certainly have an impact, but it will also have an impact in your relationship with countries lower down the scores. In the end, you're, you're, the UK will not be uh, sort of a shining light uh, in the fight against corruption. Um, tell us a little bit about what else you've, you've discovered in this, week, in this year's list that's, that surprised you or what, what changes are marked. Well, what, what we see, which is maybe not so much of a surprise, but it's certainly an alarm bell, is that Countries that are facing challenges with conflict security um, are dropping and finding it more challenging. We're also seeing a a number of countries that are starting to use corruption, not for profit and financial gain, but as a weapon to erode other uh, states and and particularly attacking democracies and fragile democracies to trying to capture them. And that trend of corruption becoming less of a financial issue of inconvenience and rather an issue of national security is something that we're starting to see more clearly. And, and, and generally, what, in what direction of travel is that taking us then? Because when you have it sort of endemic, it, it, becomes, it becomes difficult for the rest of the world, doesn't it? Indeed, indeed. And, and if, if you look at the, uh, the approaches that Russia, for instance, have in this area, we're seeing it as a worrying trend, starting all obviously with with the invasion of of Ukraine and what led up to that and their campaigns in trying to capture the state with nonviolent means using corruption. But we're seeing also less uh, serious but still very concerning events such as the Qatar Gate 
uh, with the European Parliament uh, that revealed how corruption had been used in order to capture that democracy. Um, just you mentioned a moment ago the, the the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. What effect has that had on your list? Well, we see a slight drop in Russia and we see a slight improvement on Ukraine. As a matter of fact, Ukraine over the last 10 years have increased quite a lot. And I had a chat here with with our head of our Ukraine office and they are working intensely and bravely over the last year to ensure that corruption and anti-corruption measures uh, are being dealt with appropriately in all the funds and and resources that are streaming into the country at the moment. And so it... It is certainly affecting corruption and we're, we're working on this topic proactively. So finally, Daniel, uh, where are there moments or, or examples of hope where we do see people acting more properly? Well, we, we certainly see with regards to the invasion of Ukraine, we're finally seeing a number of countries taking this, serious, uh, this problem seriously. The sanctions, the recognition that countries in the global north, developed countries, should not be safe havens for corrupt money. Uh, and that proactively a number of law enforcement agencies are collaborating internationally to address this issue, which is promising. Thank you for that, Daniel Erickson. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. in Zurich, 7.37 here in London. Now let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Andrew Walker, journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. Glad to have you in the studio, Andrew. My pleasure to be here. So thank you very much indeed for coming in. Um, So we we were talking about corruption a moment ago um, and and how the war in Ukraine has affected Mm -hmm. the way that the the world operates properly or improperly. Um, There's quite a lot of coverage, especially in the Financial Times today, about Ukraine's um, bid to to, to join the European yeah. Union. And there's a warning that actually, indeed. if you are the European Union, and if you are Ukraine, don't get your hopes up. Well, indeed. So there's a summit later this week involving the EU institutions, a visit to Kiev rather than the member states, that is. Um, uh, so that's Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, and Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, president of the Commission. Um, and they were very keen for Ukraine to be given formal candidate status as a member of the European Union, which happened last year. Um, but there are signs that the FT is reporting that some of the member states are a little wary of, of Ukraine getting unrealistic expectations about how quickly it might all happen. Um, I mean, some hopes that um, Ukrainian hopes that it might be might actually join the EU by 2026. And there are some EU member states wanting to want, wanting to damp that down a little bit. And um, you know, bear in mind, being a, um, a an EU candidate member is can be a very very long process indeed. Turkey is the example that stands out. They formally became candidates in 1999, and Turkish membership is nowhere near imminent. So there is this real tension, isn't there? Because I know that the EU is very keen to um, be as supportive as possible of Ukraine, 
Um, and the idea that Ukraine has aspirations for EU membership is something that um, that goes down very well with the EU, and they 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 want to be supportive of that aspiration. But um, as other accession negotiations have shown, it's a, there's a long, hard process of getting a country into a state where um, where where it can mesh with the EU politically and economically successfully. In, indeed, and it has to be a trusted partner, and it's it's, it's such a difficult situation now mm. because and uh, this article in the Financial Times just lays it bare. Um, one EU diplomat has said that Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel are out competing each other on who can show themselves to be more pro-Ukrainian. So. That's a completely understandable thing to do because one wants to scoop Ukraine up, bring yeah, it yeah. into the bosom of the European Union, and protect it. And protect, However, and also, and also give the, and also, I mean, give the kind of uh, the, the support Ukrainian morale in this conflict by giving them hope that this might be a realistic aspiration to um, to to join a kind of political centre of gravity that many Ukrainians and certainly the Ukrainian uh, government find so much much more attractive than than the centre of gravity that's right on their border. And we have a really difficult situation there with Ukraine, talking about corruption a few moments ago. Mm. Ukraine does have a severe set of problems, doesn't it, that it's had for... For, for for a long long time in terms of the way that it is structured, mm-hmm. the way that the where it's where its money comes from, the levels of internal corruption as well. Um, it it where had it not been invaded by Russia. Mm-hmm it's questionable whether this conversation would be being had. Uh, I think that those, those kind of aspirations for membership by 2026 simply wouldn't be there. And yes, it's partly these concerns about governance, if you like, the political system and corruption. But also it's a very large agricultural economy. Um, integrating that with the EU would be a challenge. And it, it is actually, um, and amongst the former Soviet um, Soviet um, republics, it is it is one of the worst performing economically. And if you look at um, the struggle to regain the ground that was lost in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine has had a particularly rough time of getting that ground back. Um, let's have a look at uh, Le Monde and the way that it has covered extensive um, protests mm-hmm. in France against pension reform. We have, once again, a direct collision course between the unions and French workers and the government, yep. which is desperately trying to raise the, the, the retirement age. I think mm-hmm. it's 62 to 64, That's right, yeah, yeah. And, and also that, increasing the minimum working period you have to do to, to qualify for the full state pension, yeah. That is, in, how many times have we travelled this road? Yeah, and, sure. and for any French government tries to change this and, and generally comes unstuck. And it, mm-hmm. it can often be the undoing of a government. Um, but the strikes in France have really shown that they are, you know, that people are res- wildly resistant to this. And the numbers on the streets are also indicative of that. And that's one of the key points that comes out of the, um, uh, of the Le Monde uh, report. Um, Inevitably, on these occasions, you get different estimates of the numbers from uh, from the police and from the organisers. But even if you look at the um, the police figure um, reported by the Interior Ministry, they reckon um, one, nearly 1.3 million people taking part in the streets. Uh, the and the union, the CGT union, estimating uh, considerably more than than double that. That's quite a substantial increase on the first round of protests back in uh, mid-January. So the momentum does seem to be there. Um, 
I mean, France in common, I mean, you were talking about ageing populations in Italy just a moment ago, and and France has to deal with the, the same issues. It does mean that there are some um, some questions to be answered about how the pension is, um, about how pensions are organised. Um, an ageing population means you have to do something. Um, it may be higher contributions, perhaps from workers, perhaps from employers, um, or more indirectly from the tax system, or you raise the pension age, um, or you reduce benefits. So, whatever the outcome, whatever the outcome of this, um, uh, the, 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 well, if the protesters succeed in um, in, in in getting these reforms uh, put um, put back, um, I'm, I'm quite sure the issue will return. When you look at what's happening in France, and then you hop on the Eurostar and get out and see what's happening in London today, or indeed across can, the United yes, Kingdom. If you, if you can yes, get on a bus afterwards. Well, yes. that's exactly the thing, because we yeah. are just about to enter into a big thing called Walkout Wednesday. Yes, indeed. And some of the, uh, including including some transport workers, some train drivers, some bus drivers. Um, it's, I think it's mainly south in, in terms of London. I think the, um, the main effect is... Um, uh, in the south and west of the capital, so far as the buses are concerned, so you should be able to get off the Eurostar at St Pancras and get a get a bus somewhere. But yes, um, and teachers, university workers, civil servants, um, it is very striking, isn't it? I mean, I suppose there's an underlying commonality with. Um, what's going on in France, um, although it's not about pensions primarily here, at least it is to a degree about underpinning both stories is the strains that there are on government finances, paying for the pensions in the case of France and um, paying the, the salaries of these um, public sector workers um, in the UK. The UK thing is also to a degree driven by a relatively short-term factor, which is the dramatic increase in inflation we've had in the last year, which has um, has brought tensions to the labour market that we hadn't seen for quite a long time, whereas the French thing, of course, is a much more long-term um, thing that reflects demographic changes that we've known about for a very long time. Finally, briefly, Andrew, we're, if we look up and gaze into the skies, we might see a green you might, comet. You might. A green comet. A, which, is, which is pretty unusual. Um, and it reflects some unusual particular carbon chemistry in the in the composition of the comet. Um, if you look up, um, you'll need to be somewhere where um, where it's pretty dark. Um, I suspect, as I I live in London with a lot of street lighting, I think I'm I'm not going to be staying up tonight to to look. Uh, but if you're somewhere dark with a with a um, uh, with with clear clear cloudless skies, you might be able to see. It won't be that strong by all accounts, but it is unusual. This particular comet was last in the area uh, fifty thousand years ago, I think. So a time when Neanderthals were around, and um, our own ancestors would have been hunt, hunter gatherers. Um, so I mean, there are other greenish comments, but they're, 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 they are pretty unusual. So if you do get the opportunity to um, to look at it, um, why not? Um, it Thank was. You. It's apparently, I mean, it, it's not very big. So seeing it with the naked eye might be a struggle. A you haven't exactly would be built a real it up. Advantage. <laughs> um, built its part up, but Andrew well, Walker, thank I, you so much. if I was much. in the countryside, I'd, I think I would stay up for the night to see if I could get a glimpse of it. Andrew, thank you so much for my joining my us on Monocle 24. <laughs>
Let's get a roundup now of the latest urbanism news with Sheena Rossiter, Monocle's contributing editor in Edmonton in Canada, where it's late night. Good evening to you, Sheena. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Um, so the latest issue from Urbanism Circles is, well, it's something that we've talked about for a lot, for a long, long time here. It's the idea of a 15-minute city. It originally started in Paris, but why all the buzz now? Yeah, exactly. This has been around for a while. The term itself has been around for about a decade, but really it's not a new concept at all. It's just got this new catchy term that's been slapped all over it. Of course, it just means that you can get anywhere in 15 minutes by walking or biking. As you mentioned, it started in Paris as a move under Mayor Anne Hidalgo. It was her re-election campaign cornerstone. It worked, obviously, and it's been used as well. It was tried to be used in New York to to have a re-election campaign there as well, but it didn't work as quite as well. Urbanists are urgently trying to have this opportunity to help define the 15-minute city and see how it kind of creates more sustainable planning and urban design before it's kind of discredited as a mere like, political slogan because it has been used as a political football in New York and in Paris. But really, it's mostly uh, planning solutions while we talk about better ways to do climate science. It's an interesting idea, um, and, and it's something that lots and lots of cities are trying to grapple with, including where you are in Edmonton. Yeah, exactly. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because this has really been in the news here for the past week or so. They're really trying to push this 15-minute city. Obviously, the city here is trying to grow to about 1.25 million people, and Edmonton has been known to be a very sparsely, like, it's one of the least densely populated cities in North America. So there is this big push to kind of fill in the larger urban landscape in the center, making it more densely populated by having, say, more missing middle housing and also getting rid of parking minimums. However, it's not really something that's necessarily doable here in the city because number one it's freezing for a large chunk of the year so people aren't really going to walk or certainly bike in minus 20 degrees celsius weather sometimes minus 30 degrees celsius weather and quite simply the way that the city has sprawled over the decades is very difficult to get around this place without a car so if they don't put up different infrastructure it doesn't seem to necessarily be that it could be something that would work as well people are getting more used to walking around because of COVID, as you said, but this has received so much backlash online, even feeding into some sort of conspiracy theories that uh, were being locked down, which is absolutely ridiculous. But of course, it's it's going to be a tough one to sell by Mayor Amarjeet So here, here in the city. what are people so angry about? Because it, it's it's generally accepted, isn't it? That you know it is better for people to work near to where they live and if they can go shopping nearby, you you have a slightly more tranquil existence. I think that's what an urbanist at the Sorbonne said, that you, it brings tranquil, tranquility to your life. So why are people so angry? You know, Emma, that is a really good question. I feel that people just are are very protective about their cars. And it's also the fact that it's quite nice to get out of where you live and, and see opportunity and, you, you know, the, the idea that breaking out from your local local world. Is it just about cars though, Sheena? Uh, I, you know, some people just don't really like, people feel like they, people feel like they, they just want to get out and, and do a bit more. But I think it's, it also leads to the, 
the conspiracy theories where people really feel like they're being told to do things by the government, which this is absolutely not true. This is just a, this is an urban design issue, which uh, obviously makes things better quality of life for all of us. And it's an interesting thing that when we start talking about a walkable city in the likes of Europe, that's pretty straightforward. It can be done if the idea came from Paris. But when you look at the most walkable cities in the United States, I mean, that's is that is that just a bit of a leap that we're dealing with here? Exactly. North America is absolutely a car-centric society. In Canada and the United States, the only city that really is more accessible to walk around is New York City in the United States. But everywhere else in North America, very car-dependent. But a recent report that was released by Smart Growth America, it's showing that more walkable places in the United States it currently only makes up 1.2% of the urban landscape in the 35 largest metropolitan cities. But if they increase that foot traffic, it's just going to increase for wealthier societies and more equitable societies as well, because it's going to create um, more walkable urban spaces where people who are like lower and middle income can get around easier and can get to all their places. So there is actually a very clear financial benefit to having a more walkable, smaller city space. Oh, absolutely. It's estimated, according to this report, it's estimated that it accounts for about 19.1% of all real GDP in the U.S. if you create a more walkable urban center. So there is actual clear dollar values and percentage around how beneficial these walkable cities are. And that is going to definitely be on the agenda, both here in Canada and the United States. And it already is being talked about in urban centers. If the people accept it as much, that's a tougher sell, Emma. Sheena Rossiter, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Edmonton. You're with The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Finally today, Thailand has big ambitions when it comes to the future of aviation in the country. The government says it's going to spend almost $9 billion on the development of a so-called Eastern Aviation City. We've been told to forget everything we know about airports. Well, joining me now from Bangkok is James Chambers, who's Monocle's Asia editor. Hello, James. Hi, Emma. Um, so the Eastern Aviation City, what's it going to do? Yeah, it sounds, sounds very grand uh, as a title, um, but the, the government here in Thailand has ambitions to, to turn the country and to turn the capital into an aviation hub to rival places like Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, and the, the, the problem it has is that the two major airports that are serving Bangkok right now are already over capacity, or at least they were pre-COVID. So I guess their long-term strategy is to develop a third airport um, and this is what has been called the Eastern Aviation City. Um, it's basically um, uh, an old military airport to the east of Bangkok, which was actually originally built by the Americans during the Vietnam War uh, as, a, uh, as an airbase to, to send their planes to, to, to bomb Hanoi. Um, so it's an existing kind of military airport, but the plan is to spend, as you said, nine billion US dollars developing it into something that can serve, you know, up to sixty million passengers a year. 
It is enormous. Could you just describe what what the Thai authorities actually want to put in this in this new centre, this hub? Well, I mean, part of the the Thai government's, I guess, their biggest project, their biggest initiative, is this thing called the Eastern Economic Corridor, and it's this huge special economic zone to to the east of Bangkok. People might be might have heard of Pattaya before, which is a, like kind of a destination. But if you go further on along the Gulf of Thailand, that, that it's like the industrial base of, of, of Thailand, where they have a lot of kind of automotive manufacturing. Um, and they they want to prioritize this area as, a, as an investment destination. Um, and one of the ways they want to do that is by having, you know, a better uh, transport infrastructure. Um, you know, flying in and out of Thailand can be uh, a bit of a pain. Um, it is notorious for you know the uh, the, the, the traffic problems. Um, and developing a a third airport will hope hopefully ease some of this. Uh, and for I guess for foreign investors and, and business people who who are looking at investing in this eastern economic corridor and having you know a purpose built airport might tempt them away from places like, you know, Hong Kong or, or, or Singapore. So, you know, it's very early days. This is something that was approved in 2000 and got delayed by, you know, by COVID. Uh, the, the big news is that they're going to start construction um, early this year, uh, but it's going to be in a, in a number of phases. So, you know, phase one should be completed next year and it'll be a, a terminal for passengers. Um, and they expect to be able to, to, to welcome 15 million. But the whole project, I mean, they're talking about 2055 as, as the end date for, for, for this. So it's going to take a long time and there's going to be a lot of uh, money and a lot of work involved. And it doesn't just stop at being an airport, does it? it, it the fact is, is that the scale of this is to, it, it links the budget airport with Thailand's main airport. So what you do is you're now bringing everybody together. But at the same time, they're trying to create a destination in itself. Um, tell us a little bit about what the, the, the aim is here. Well, as you said, you know, part of this whole um, investment and this, this project is to link um, all of the airports together. So there are currently two airports. Uh, Suvana Bumi Airport is the main one, which was built in the early 2000s. That's the one that most people will, will be familiar with. Um, and there's another one called Don Muang, which is the only one in Bangkok proper. That's the old airport. So this one, this new one, is, in, is called Utapau, and it's in the east. And the government plans to build this high-speed rail link uh, to connect all three of them. Um, and so, so it helps to maybe think about... If you're in London, you, we have you know, in London there's Heathrow, uh, there's Gatwick, and City, and, and, and perhaps Stansted. Now it's, it's a similar idea to that. You know, B- Bangkok wants to uh, develop as a, as a major international city, um, and it looks at cities like like London and New York, which have at least three major airports. Um, so it wants to get to that level, and it wants to link them up. So it doesn't matter whether you fly into Don Muang or fly into Utapau, you can you know you can connect easily to, to flights around Thailand and, and around the region. The government spokesperson, when he announced that construction was beginning, he did, you know, kind of try and play it as a, as a, as a, as a tourist airport um, because uh, obviously tourism is huge in Thailand um, and it's, it's already uh, struggling to, you know, to meet that demand. 
but uh, I would say it's, it is more of a, a kind of a commercial and, and, and a foreign investment play um, because you know, this is where this is the industrial heartland of, of, of Thailand, and it will be a major uh, incentive for, for foreign investors. So they, James, well, the I'm afraid we'll... it's not just infrastructure. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there because time has run out on us. James Chambers in Bangkok, thank you so much for joining us. That's all we have time for today's episode of The Globalist. Many thanks to all my guests and to producers Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Emma Sell and to our researchers Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parmintian and to our studio manager too, Nora Hole. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>